<coughs> okay, today, if you've got a Bible, please go to Ephesians chapter 6. We are finishing off the um, book of Ephesians today. We are finishing off the book of Ephesians. Um, and as I promised, we have chocolates to celebrate. So there's a big tin of chocolates there, George. Do you want to open that up and pass it around? Um, sorry? Oh, before I finish, yeah, you can... Now, the rustling, you've got to keep to a minimum. You know, but we'll just keep passing it around. And if you think this might take a while to get back to me, you might want to take one or two or three, um, depending. And if you're on the front row, which is obviously the best place to sit, because where God is, right at the front, you get first dibs of the chocolates. Because if we kind of go across the front... So by the time it gets to the back, the kind of your favourites might have gone. But there you go. Now, it, the, this last section of Ephesians, it's, it's ironic, really, um, that we're talking about this particular section on this day, uh, Remembrance Sunday, and thinking about the kind of the military and what's happened in um, conflict, because actually this section is very much a kind of fighting section, if you will. Its themes are battle and warfare and armour and, and, and fighting um, enemies. And I don't know um, if kind of what you think about that, but I'm a, I'm a film fan and I like watching films, and some of my favourite films are ones that have these epic battle scenes that contain, you know, hundreds, thousands of extras performing these um, great battles. One of my favourites is The Lord of the Rings, and if you get to the end of The Lord of the Rings, the final film, there is the Battle of the Pelennor Fields outside Minas Tirith, and there are the armies of man against the armies of Mordor, and there is this incredible scenes where they are fighting and there are thousands upon thousands of troops clashing in battle uh, with swords and shields and spears and men on horseback and all sorts of fabulous beasts added into it as well. In a kind of more historical take, have you ever seen the film Gladiator? It begins with this campaign by the Roman legions against the Germanic hordes um, it's kind of in what we now call modern Germany, the tribes, and there is a battle that begins that where the Roman leaders are facing on these kind of, I don't know, these sort of look kind of berserk um, tribesmen with their bare chests and war paint and axes, and there is a huge battle there. And as I, um, I did ancient history A level, and so I was, um, I studied some of this stuff from a historical perspective and looked at it. And as I learned about the Roman Empire, I looked at the fall of the Republic and the rise of the Empire, that kind of period of history, which is very much around the birth of Christ. And you found, as you watched it, you saw that the Roman legions were the superpower. They were the might of the day. The mighty Roman legions were all-conquering and all-powerful. And they were the image of the, the, the authority and the military might of Rome. These, these men, legions, men upon men with armour and shields that would go into battle and decimate their foes. They, they took over all of what we know as modern Germany, France or Gaul into Spain, across into Britain, North Africa. They conquered it with these legions and these great generals who led them, be like Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great. They would, they would just fight these battles and this image of Roman soldiers as these, this mighty fighting force is what's influencing this last section of um, the book of Ephesians. It's the climax of the letter. Paul has specifically addressed, we've seen over the last three times, uh, different family relationships coming out of this call to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit, 
um, and it results in thanksgiving and singing psalms and there's this, this idea of submission and he looked at wives and husbands and he looked at parents and children and last week he looked at slaves and masters and then he's coming on to this sort of last section and he even begins it with the word finally and this whole section is rife with imagery drawn from the Old Testament and the image from the Old Testament it's pulling out is of God as a warrior particularly the book of Isaiah has many images as God as a mighty conquering warrior, a powerful warrior. And I don't know what you, when you think about God and you think about Jesus as God represented to us, how you think about him, what kind of images come to mind. Jesus who was tender, who healed, who cared, who had compassion, who welcomed the children, who was humble and a servant and died this humiliating death on the cross and all these kind of images which are all very important but at the same time the Bible paints images of the Lord of Jesus himself as a mighty warrior the risen king all conquering all powerful who will destroy his foes who will destroy his enemies who nothing can stand against him in Revelation we see him riding on a a white horse charging out and his foes are just being massacred before him decimated there is a sword coming out of his mouth to cut them down and destroy them. And Isaiah contains some of that imagery as well. And as Paul is coming to sort of the end of the letter with this finally, that is kind of what's in his mind. That's what we can pick out of here as he gives his kind of final instructions to the church um, at Ephesus, which have great significance for us today. So I'm just going to read this last section. Beginning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of heaven in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and have put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end, keep alert with all perseverance Making, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that my words may be given to me uh, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Okay, three things we're going to look at today, the structure of the passage. The first one, be strong. The second one, stand firm. And the last one, watch and pray. The first one, be strong, those first couple of verses. If you think about being strong... <coughs> or becoming strong. <clears throat> I don't know what images come to mind. You might think of working out at the gym, you know, the lifting weights, um, doing all your exercises, working out on those machines uh, they have there. You might think of the Olympics we've just had with lots of athletes, uh, men and women, who have trained their bodies to peak performance in whatever skill, discipline, sport they're involved in. And they would be like, they are strong, men and women, physically. And Paul is saying to the church, be strong. But he's, it's, it's different. It says, be strong in the Lord. That's different. You might think, I'm not physically strong. I'm not necessarily physically in the mode able. I've got the, the gammy knee. 
the kind of the bad back. So if you ask me to do something physical, it might be difficult for me. I might not have the stamina to keep going in this situation. But Paul is saying, be strong, but be strong in the Lord. Be strong. The, the kind of the translation was, be strong of the Lord. It's actually, it's not in yourself that you've got to be strong. It's in someone else. There is an external source of strength that is coming to you, and that external source is Jesus. And this is something that comes out of the Old Testament. We have in Joshua, where the Lord turned up to Joshua just before he's about to lead the people into the Promised Land, and it's, he said to Joshua several times in Joshua chapter one, "Be strong." And courageous. That was his command to Joshua. Um, David, in uh, 1 Samuel 30, it says, David found strength in God. And David, we know, and Joshua were both warriors. They were both fighters. They were men of action, men of war. But actually, they found their strength, and they were commanded to have strength in God. And that, that mighty power it talks about is a dynamic strength on behalf of God, something that is working in power. It says in Ephesians, this same power that raised Christ from the dead, it's that power that is at work in us. It's the same um, reason, you know, the same thing that raised Christ uh, to life. He was dead, dead body. You know, imagine the power that it takes to bring someone back to life. That is what is at work in you. And we are to be strong in the Lord. Well, what does that look like, being strong in the Lord? Men and women who are strong in the Lord are men and women who are full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Word of God, and constant and vigilant in prayer. That's what strong men and women in the Lord look like. They're the kind of three elements. They are all working in their life because if they, are, if they are in the Word of God, they are full of the Spirit, they are in prayer, they are living out what God has told them to do. They are putting sin to death. They are repenting of it. They are boldly speaking the Word to one another. They are serving those around them. They are proclaiming Jesus. They are living the life um, that Jesus would have us live. And he says, be strong in the Lord. Now, why do you need to be strong in the Lord? And the bottom line is, because you're in a fight. You're in a battle. No, you're actually in a war. There is a war going on, and you're involved in it. And the fact that you've been brought into God's kingdom means you're on that side, and you are to fight in this battle. I don't know how you view life. What's your kind of, you know, how do you view you know, your day-to-day you know, I go to work, I have a family, I've got, you know, hobbies I do, I've got, you know, people I see. The Bible says very clearly, life is war. You're in a battle, you're in a fight. And texts like this bring it home to us very, very powerfully. And he says, you're in a battle, so you've got to put on armour. For them, that was what soldiers wore. They wore armour. He says, so if you're in a battle, you're in a fight, You've got to put on the armour to be in the fight. And it, 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 the armour he's talking about is kind of defensive armour to protect a soldier, but it's also offensive armour to attack uh, and fight the enemy. Shields and swords, they, they, they can um, take the fight to the enemy. And this is how we are to be as Christians. We are to have the armour of God so we can take it into the fight because we're in a battle. And that's the reality that we've got to live in. We are in a war. We don't, might not think it because our country is what we describe as at peace. We have soldiers out in various parts of the world who are trying to keep the peace but in a more active conflict situation. But we here in this country, it's peaceful, generally speaking. We don't see soldiers on the street. We don't fear air raids or things like that. We are at peace. But actually, from a Christian point of view, we are at war 
all the time, constantly. And the verse says we actually have a spiritual enemy. So you've got to be strong in the Lord. And the reason we have to be strong in the Lord is because our enemy is a spiritual enemy. It's not a physical enemy. It's a spiritual enemy. It says you stand against the schemes of the devil. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not people. But against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So, are you aware you have an enemy? How are you aware you have an enemy who hates you? Are you aware you have an enemy who hates you and wants to kill you? Wants to destroy you, destroy your faith, destroy your body, destroy everything about you because they are, they are set against you and they hate you. And this enemy is <coughs> excuse me, the devil and his forces, which explains why Christians need the armour. Because you've got someone who's out to attack you. You wouldn't have any soldier back then in those times, in biblical times, the Roman soldiers, or even now, in our modern warfare, who would go into battle without their equipment. You imagine a general saying, right, troops, we're going to do this, we're going on this peacekeeping mission, or we're going to go and protect these people, or do this, but I want you to leave your helmets behind, I want you to leave your guns behind, I want you to leave all your, your, your equipment that protects you, all your, everything I want you to leave behind, and just go. You can wear your pants, and that's it. You know, you can imagine the soldiers saying, no way, we need to take our equipment with me because we're going into an active combat situation. And it's the same for us. We need to make sure we have the armour to go and fight. Now, our enemy is the devil and his forces. And we've seen in chapter 4 that this enemy is seeking for an opportunity to attack you. He's seeking for a foothold to get into your life. And in chapter 4, Paul talks about putting off this old man the way we used to live, with all its desires and sinful attitudes. And he says, put on the new man that you've been made in the image of Christ. Put this new attitude on. He says, because the devil wants an opportunity to get in and attack you. But if you put off the old way and put on the new way, it will protect you. And so that's what we've been called to do. That's what we've been asked to do. And we are in this ultimate battle against the enemy, against spiritual forces that we actually we can't see um, but they are there and they are arrayed against us. Now, it's worth saying that often these, this battle has a human face. We're not actually fighting against flesh and blood, it makes clear. But actually, things with human faces can have demonic influence behind them. The devil desires to take good things, God things, and corrupt them and make them evil and, and make them destroy us. He'll take things like sex and money and work and family all which are godly things, good things that he's given to us to enjoy, and he will corrupt them and use them to destroy you. He'll make sex a God that controls your life and worship you, that you worship in all sorts of ways, in promiscuity, in pornography, in everything, and he will use it to attack you. The same with money. He even says, isn't it, it's the root of all kinds of evil. Money is good, we need money. We need to earn money, we, we use it, we can use it to honour the kingdom, to, to advance gospel work, but actually money can become a God that we worship and it drives us and it becomes our kind of our desire and that's exactly what the enemy wants to do. The same with work and family. They can become God things that kind of stand over our life and we will sacrifice anything to achieve them or keep, keep them. And this battle is an up-close and personal battle. It says, it says you wrestle. You cannot wrestle with anyone without getting hold of them or them getting hold of you. You might think, I don't want to wrestle with them. Well, tough, they've grabbed you. What are you going to do? You know, someone's got you in the chokehold. 
You know, someone's grabbed your leg. Are you going to kick it away? They've got hold of your arm. They've got you around the waist. You are wrestling. And that picture is the, the picture of hand-to-hand combat, nice and close. When, when forces met, there will be this crash as they, they hit each other and there'll be swords and shields flying, and then the men would literally be grappling with each other, trying to incapacitate, kill, put down their enemy before the enemy did it to them. And that's the battle you're in. The enemy is right there in front of you, in your face, everywhere you go, and he's trying to take you down, trying to incapacitate you, wrestle you, put a chokehold on you, get you to tap out. I've had enough of this Christian life. I want to walk away. I want to give in to sin. And that's what he's after. He's right in your face. But we're not meant to be scared of intimidated by that because we know the victory's been won. We've already seen that in Ephesians very, very clearly. The battle has been won. Jesus has conquered. He is ruling and reigning in power. So we have confidence and power because we're strong in the Lord to resist the work of the enemy. Resist it to stand firm, knowing actually the ultimate battle had been completely won in Christ. And so actually as we face these spiritual forces that are arrayed against us, we know we're on the winning side. We know we've won. We know Jesus has conquered and will one day wind it all up um, and we will be with him forever and the enemy will have gone um, and all the sickness and darkness and suffering will have left us. And we can stand and then we can enjoy that. But in the meantime, we are to be strong in the Lord. And I want to urge you as a church, do not take that charge of the Apostle Paul lightly to be strong in the Lord. To be strong in something requires constant um, conditioning. If it was a physical strength, constant conditioning of your body, lifting weights, eating the right thing. It's an ongoing process. It's not something you can suddenly you know, stop, I'll be strong forever. You have to keep going. It's the same with being strong in the Lord. It's not something you, you get to just, oh, I, I'm strong now, I'll stop. No, ongoing. Keep going, keep, keep pushing forward. The next thing, to stand firm. Verse 13 says, Therefore take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14 starts, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the redness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith for which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. God's power is in you to stand firm. The whole idea of standing firm is to resist, is to take a position against, is to kind of put your shoulder down and say, I will not be moved from this point. From the point of view of soldiers in battle, they would stand firm on the line and the enemy would come and the generals would be saying, hold the line. Hold the line. Do not give in. Because if you give ground... You're then backing up everyone behind them. You're endangering the troops behind them. If, if the line breaks at any point, the enemy will pour through the line and attack the other soldiers from the side or behind. And so it was vital in combat that you stood firm. You hold the line. Because if you gave, you're endangering the men on either side of you and those behind you giving support and actually the whole line can collapse and the battle is lost and it's all over at that point. So we are to stand firm in God, and I think it says it four times in the passage, this whole idea of standing firm. And it, sta- it says stand firm um, in this kind of present evil age. And that, that would just be the age in which we live. This age as we currently live now, until Jesus returns, we know Jesus won the victory, but we're living in this. The kingdom has come, but it has not yet fully come. 
Um, and we have to, to stand while we're here. So it's an ongoing thing. It's not something you just do once. It's something we have to continually do. And, but we've been given armour to help us with that. And he, he proceeds to list it out. He talks, the first one he talks about is the belt of truth, which was kind of this, um, almost like an apron that the soldiers would wear um, underneath their armour to sort of to cover them. And it would, there was something that you had to fasten to hold it tight. Um, and the idea was um, that it didn't flap around. And so you have to have it held on tight, which says to us that there's going to be activity. If you fasten things down, make sure everything's lashed down and clothed, it means you're going to be moving quickly. You can't have stuff flapping around that gets caught, catches you up, takes your eye off your enemy. So it has to be fastened down. And this alludes back to Isaiah 4, uh, no, sorry, Isaiah 11, um, verse 4 and 5, where it talks about truth. Get on truth like an undergarment. It's something that you, you put on underneath you, the truth of God. And the truth for the believer is the truth that we've been looking at throughout the whole book of Ephesians. We've got five chapters of it, five and a half chapters of it up till this point where, where Paul has just outlined, this is the truth, this is the truth. This is the mystery that God has revealed to the world, that he has a plan to reconcile man to one another, man to God. He's formed the church as a new, new community. This is all through Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. We have a new kind of identity now in Christ. And this is the truth that we are to affirm and hold on to and bind to us underneath everything um, to hold us in this battle. And he says you put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the breastplate will go around the middle. It would protect from swords and arrows that would be coming at you. Um, it protects the kind of the important centre of the body. Even troops now, even though warfare has changed, still wear flak jackets, body armour, which protect the same part of the body. Police have stab vests that protect this important centre of the body and the Roman soldiers would have had a breastplate which um, covered them. And this alludes back to Isaiah 59 where it talks about the breastplate of righteousness. That's what he's put on, a righteousness, a breastplate, the Lord as the warrior. And it would protect you from your enemy. And this righteousness he's talking about can kind of come in two ways. There is a uh, what they call a forensic righteousness, which we are justified before God. We stand right before God, end of story. Because of Christ's death on the cross, we are justified. We've been declared not guilty. It says that we've been seeing it in Ephesians, where, where we, can, um, we can come by access to the Father because of what Christ has done in our lives. We are completely righteous before him. But there's also an element where it's an ethical righteousness, where actually we are to live righteous lives. We have the righteousness of God. Wonderful, let's enjoy that. But at the same time, we are to live righteous lives and have that shield of righteousness because we are living right before God. We're living ethically. We're living the way he has commanded. We've put off the old man. We've put off the new man. And this righteousness kind of protects the very core of our identity, the heart. When the Bible talks about the heart, it doesn't just talk about the muscle in our body. It talks about the very core of our being, who we are. And deep down, we are righteous before God. And no matter what the enemy says to us, no matter what lies comes to us, he's the father of lies, we know we have the truth and the righteousness of God that protect us. And actually, he can accuse us of anything. And actually, no, before God, we are righteous and uh, we stand um, before him. Then it says we have the shoes um, of the gospel of peace. The Roman soldiers wore these boots, um, that were specially used for marching. They, they conquered all this large area on, by walking there. 
I mean, that's impressive when you think of, you look at a map, how far the Roman legions went. But they marched everywhere and they had these boots which kind of laced up um, their thighs and um, that would help them grip the ground and it would help them move and be, be, be quick in battle and be able to turn and get from one place uh, to the other. And Paul is alluding back to Isaiah 52 where it talks about how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, um, who give good tidings of you know, happiness, salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. That idea of bringing peace um, uh, to people. And we are to be ready, live this life of readiness to proclaim the gospel of good news to others, the gospel of peace. And this gospel of peace is both uh, vertical and horizontal. We proclaim peace before God. You can be reconciled to God. That's the message of the cross. But at the same time, it's, there's a horizontal dimension where actually we can be reconciled to one another. We saw that in chapter 2. The first part of chapter 2 is all about vertical reconciliation. The second part of chapter 2 is all about horizontal reconciliation where we are one new man in Christ regardless of our gender, our ethnicity, our social background, whatever, culture. We have been brought together. So we are to proclaim this gospel of peace. We have the shield of faith. The Roman soldiers carried these huge shields. You've seen the pictures. Big thing. Body shields covered their whole bodies and they stood in protection. They weren't these little you know, wussy buckler things. They were big tower shields that would stand and when they lined up you had all of them lined together. It created a wall um, against the enemy. And we have um, this shield of faith. And if you kind of read the commentaries going to the translation, it's almost it's the shield is faith. And actually faith is our shield. That is what it is. And this whole idea of um, being um, a shield is something from the Old Testament that we see where God shields his people. And Paul's bringing that allusion, that he's saying, because of your faith, your faith in God, that acts as a shield against the enemy. We have this faith that God will protect us, God will look after us. Um, <coughs> faith is a gift from God, but we're also told to exercise it. One piece says we are to exercise that faith. So we have this faith, and it says it can extinguish the darts of the enemy. Roman shields, I, I read, were actually had, were kind of soaked in water before battle. So they, they, they were wet. So when the enemy put the flaming arrows over, they'd hit a wet shield. And it would distinguish their, 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 kind of their attack. And it says we can extinguish the darts of the enemy in the same idea. Our faith, when the enemy comes to attack, our faith in God can extinguish that and say, actually, no, we will not accept that lie. We will not accept what you're saying. And the enemy will try to undermine your faith in every way he can. He will use a bit of bitterness and unforgiveness. He will use disappointment in God. He will use anger. All these things, he will get to try and undermine your faith and get you to doubt God and doubt God's words. Does God really love me? Will God sort this situation out? Is God really here with me? You know, the, the, the things that I've, you know, I've, dealt, uh, I've had done to me, will God one day actually deal with them? Or do I have to try and sort that out now? He'll try and undermine God's word. What did the serpent say to Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God say? He immediately went to undermine God's word, undermine their faith. God was very clear. You can eat what you want, just not that one. And he, the serpent came and said, did God say? Undermine his word. Undermine, which is what the devil's trying to do. Undermine your faith in God. And so we are to the stand firm, be strong in the Lord, helps protect us with this shield of faith, our faith in God. We have the helmet of salvation. That the helmet, 
that they wore. It just covered their head, covered the back of their head down here, but it also covered the cheek bits on the side to their head. Their eyes were free to see, but their head was um, fully covered. And Isaiah 59 talks about um, the helmet of salvation on um, the, the Lord who is the warrior. And uh, the literal translation we've got here is almost the helmet is the salvation. So our salvation is kind of what protects us, that we are saved by God and we have been, um, uh, Ephesians made very clear what has happened when we've become saved. We've been uh, raised up and seated with Christ, it says. It says that um, we have been saved by grace. We are seated in heavenly places. We are now alive when we once were dead. And we have this salvation which has been given to us. We've been rescued, it says, um, from this old dark, this old kingdom, the bondage that was on us, and we've been brought into a new kingdom of light in Jesus. This is what's happened. And we can take confidence in the battle we're in because we have the helmet of salvation. We are saved as a people. Nothing that can come against you can take that. Because you've been saved by God. You've been seated in these heavenly places. He will, come, he will protect you. So you might find yourself in a situation where you know, it, it, I'm feeling overwhelmed in every way. I feel like I'm surrounded by the enemy, fighting alone. And God can say, well, you have the helmet of salvation. You are saved. You have been raised up. You are alive in Christ. You can resist the enemy. You can stand firm uh, in him. And then the last one there is the um, offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit. Roman soldiers had a (coughs) short-handled sword, one of these big, long, short-handled sword, which they wore in their belts. And it was short because it was designed for close-quarter fighting. There would be, you'd get in with the enemy, and there'd be kind of the pushing and shoving. You've got a short stabbing sword to just thrust into the enemy in the, in the stomach then onto the next one. And it was ideally suited for close quarter fighting. And when your enemy is trying to wrestle you and grab hold of you, that's what you need. You don't need the great big long thing. You need something short, stab them in the ribs, and they go down. They're dead. And so we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which we are to declare. We are to speak out. The image of... Um, That in the Bible, we see it in Revelation, we see it also in Isaiah 11, of this sword coming out of the mouth of God to destroy his enemies and cut them down. A sword, however you spin it, is an offensive, deadly weapon. I know they look cool, but they're only designed for one thing, to stab or chop you. You know, you don't play with swords, because the only thing you can do with them is cut something down. And either yourself or, you know, or someone else. But that's what they're there for. They are deadly weapons. And we are to have the word of God in us and proclaim it out of us um, as truth to destroy the enemy. That's how we attack the enemy. We proclaim truth. And I don't know, it's good to read the word of God. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It's good to read the word of God and get it in us. But I think the word of God gains its power in one way. is when we actually speak it out. You actually speak it out. I don't know if you're in the habit of actually speaking out the truth out loud. There's something about the power of actually it coming out of your mouth. I know when Melanie did um, those couple of sermons on kind of our identity, and she gave you those list of things that we were in Christ. I found it, I found it interesting. I sat and read it and thought, that's great. But when I stood up and I, I, I said it out loud, I am a child of God. You know, I am holy and righteous. All these things. I am a saint, the Bible says. When it comes out of your mouth, it seems to have a power to build you up that's more than just reading. And so I want to encourage you, when, you, when you're reading the Word of God, it's good to just read it aloud. 
Apparently, you're more likely to remember things when you read it aloud. Um, it's just auditory as well as your, your brain's reading. It goes in. But actually, you're proclaiming the truth of God. When you're standing against him and you're finding yourself tempted, proclaim some of the truth. God says, is not he, that you cannot be tempted beyond what you can bear. He's put that in place. He's limited the enemy in that sense. That's a good thing to proclaim when you feel tempta- tempted. I can't be tempted on beyond what I can bear. God will provide a way out. When you're feeling down, does God love you? You find some of the verses. God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's me. He who confesses his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart, God raised the dead, will be saved. That's me. You can do these things. You can build yourself up. So stand firm in the world of the Lord. And the kind of challenge for, there, for you there is, are there areas in your life where you know you need to stand firm? Are there areas in your life where you know that there's a kind of you're compromising, you're giving ground to the enemy and he's got a foothold in your life and you know you need to deal with it. You need to push back and retake that ground to stand firm in what's coming. Are there things that you need to do? Is there something you need to repent of? Are there things that actually I need to take that to God, repent of that? Are there things where it's beginning you think, no, I'm going to stop that now before it goes any further? Stand firm in the Lord. Last one, watch and pray. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayers and supplication. To that end, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that's Paul, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly became the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Prayer in this section, bear in mind we're talking about fighting, war, battle, armour, weapons. As a guy, all this stuff appeals to me. This excites me. I'm like, yes, I love this. Give me it and I'll go and whack it, is my kind of response. And Paul ends by saying, pray. You're in a fight. You're in a a battle. You've got this armour. I want you to stand firm and be strong. And Paul ends with the focus on prayer. That's what he says he wants you to do. He talks more about prayer than anything else in this section. Prayer is, is the kind of the climax, the focus. You need to be a praying people. It's given more, con- more prominence in this context <coughs> of spiritual warfare than anything else. Pray, 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 pray. You stand firm, be strong in the Lord, in prayer. Prayer is the foundation of this armour. How, how do you kind of get the armour, if you will? It's prayer. Prayer will bring it to light in your heart and your mind. It will get those things going. You are to pray as much as you can. Paul has already actually prayed twice in this letter, chapter 1 and chapter 3. We looked at those two prayers. And he uses the word all, I think it's four times. All times, he says, praying in the Spirit. All perseverance, all the same. It's this idea of living a lifestyle of prayer. Why do you have to live a lifestyle of prayer? Because you're in a constant battle. It doesn't end. There isn't time out. You know, sorry, tea break, need to go, refill. You know, the enemy's not going to give you that. It's constantly coming at you. And so you two are to pray, 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 pray. Because our struggle is never ending. And we're to pray in the Spirit. We've always seen in Ephesians... Um, that we have access to the Father by the Spirit, which is um, Ephesians chapter 2. The Spirit dwells in us, also Ephesians chapter 2. We've been told to be filled with the Spirit continually, Ephesians chapter 5. And so we are to bring our prayers out of that, knowing we have access to the Father. The Holy Spirit 
lives in us and we are to constantly live a lifestyle of being filled. Out of that, we are to pray in all kinds of ways at all times. We are to make intercession, stand on behalf of others, make requests, that supplication, make requests of God for ourselves, for others, what's going like. We are to be alert in prayer and we're to persevere. Alert would be that we, our mind is focused on it. We, we don't get lost in complacency and just you know, bumbling along with the next thing or let busyness and life crowd in on you or give in to kind of fatigue because it's hard. We're to be alert and keep going. And one of our dangers in this Western culture we live in is that it's nice and easy and peaceful. No one's killing us because we're Christians. You know, we can get pretty much what we want when we want in terms of just, you know, stuff and life. You know, we can get work, generally speaking, plenty of work around, and, and we can buy the stuff at the shops or we get it delivered on the internet. You know, we can come to church or not come to church. No one comes crashing in and arrests us because we're meeting here. You know, we can live this easy life. But Paul is saying, do not get complacent. Do not get in. Do not go, just get into the going through the motions. Don't get caught, so caught up in the, you know, the trivialities of life and actually forget that we're in a battle and you've got to fight. And we are to fight in prayer. He, focus, he chooses to focus on here. There are other elements, but he chooses to focus on prayer and this kind of all-encompassing nature, hence the word using all, all the time, all-encompassing, constant nature. And for us, um, as a church, we build this into the kind of regular life of the church in our life groups, which meet midweek. We have a format which we run out in those groups. We gather, we eat together every week. That helps us kind of get to know each other, build relationships, which is very important in a church. We then talk to each other, we chat. We want to make sure we're having meaningful conversation, finding out where each other is, in life, and then we end always with prayer. We pray, we eat, we chat, we pray. And that pray is something that we built in to our small group, so it's happening every week in the life of the church. Every week we're praying. Every week you can go to group and say, can I get prayer for this? Or I want to pray for you about this. I want to pray about things that are going on in the church, things that are going on in my life, things that are going on in the nation. Whatever it is, but you can pray Every week, there's an opportunity there to receive prayer and give prayer um, in, our, in our life um, as a church. And Paul then finally ends with a, requ- a prayer request. Now, I don't know what your most common prayer request is. If I said to you, can I pray for you, what would you like? You know, anything. I don't know if you've ever been asked that or if you ever think about that. If someone asked me, I'd like prayer on this. Um, what is your most common one? What would rise to the top of your list? Paul's request is fascinating. We set the scene, he's in chains in prison. I believe he's in Rome at this point. If church history is correct, Paul was beheaded in Rome. You know, he, he appealed to Rome, we saw that in the book of Acts, and then it kind of it ends, and we have to rely on church history to tell us what happened with the story. He was killed, executed in Rome. So he's in prison, facing a death sentence. If I was Paul, and I was writing to a big strong church in Ephesus, and said, would you pray for me? I would say, I want to get out of here. It's horrible being in chains in a prison. Pray for my appeal. Um, solicitor, pray for the process. Pray for favour from the emperor, whoever's in charge, the judge, so I can get out of here. It's horrible. Paul says, pray that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth 
boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And he says at the end, I declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul's final prayer request of this letter, from which he's just laid out all these incredible truths, is to pray for me that I may proclaim the message boldly. That I may have the words to speak and that I might do it fearlessly, courageously, in the face of an executioner, a hostile power like Rome, I want to proclaim this message boldly. And that is kind of where we're going to sort of leave this letter. Paul is saying, we're in this battle. We're in this fight. We're to be praying people. And his request at the end is that we would proclaim the message so others would hear it. He doesn't actually pray for safety in the battle, which I don't think is wrong, but he doesn't ask for that. He doesn't ask to be removed from the battle. He doesn't ask for the easy life. Can I get removed from the front line and have a bit of R&R over there somewhere? He doesn't say, you know, I've, I've been going at this too long. I've planted all these churches. Don't I get a break? No, he's praying, God, I want to speak the word boldly. I want to speak the word faithfully. I want to proclaim in every opportunity. He's looking at his imprisonment as an opportunity to speak to those in power and authority, even the emperor. I'll get to tell him about Jesus um, and we'll see what happens there. And I, 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 as I kind of prepared this, I got to the end and thought, man, I don't have that attitude very often. Now, in my flashes of holiness, I might have that attitude. But if you ask me for common prayer requests, I, that wouldn't necessarily rise to the top. I'd have a lot more earthly, fleshy things on the list, which aren't wrong. You know, my family, we've been ill recently, we've had some other hassles with our house, and it's not wrong to kind of ask God to intervene, but it's actually, let's lift our eyes from the humdrum and, you know, a lot of my, you know, seemingly insignificance of this world to the, to the, the cosmic perspective that Paul has outlined here. We're in a battle and what really matters when all is said and done is the message of Jesus has gone out and people have heard it and had the opportunity to respond in whatever situation we've had. And so, as we end this time, what I want to do is kind of just give you guys um, a little bit of a commission, um, particularly um, for the life groups this week. Um, that they're meeting. What I want you to do in your life groups this meet, week, week is you want you to gather as we normally do to eat, to talk, catch up, find out how we're all doing and then uh, to pray. To pray for one another, pray for the church and pray in line of what Paul has asked us to pray for here. To be people who are alert to the tactics of the enemy alert for what he's trying to do in your life, how he's trying to trip you up, where are your blind spots, where are your weaknesses. Be alert that actually he's just trying to kill you and destroy you, neutralize you as a Christian. If possibly turn you against it so that you kind of, you, you, you're lost in bitterness and you can turn others away. Keep strong in Jesus. He talks about perseverance. If you've ever done a strenuous activity, the desire to give up is so strong because you're just tired. And you've got to keep going keep going. So I want to pray that we have strength in Jesus. And lastly, the opportunity and boldness to proclaim the message of Jesus. That actually, that we would be people in whatever situation we find ourselves in, to proclaim that message fearlessly in our homes, in our workplace, to our neighbours. Pray for opportunity. And when the opportunity comes, I like to pray for opportunities. And usually when the opportunity comes, I think, look, there's an opportunity. And then I bottle it. <laughs> I think, God, thank you for the opportunity. And you think, but I blew it. Okay, now I need to up my prayer and say, opportunity and courage. So when I see it, 
I can then, I can then do it. And then I've kind of got on to stage two. So I'd love us to pray for that. I think life really is here. Andrew Becker, can you come here, please? I've got, it should be you. Um, ben and Charlotte, Charlotte, you're there. For you, just, something, just uh, by way of a reminder. And you guys, can you take your one for your group? Thank you. This week, that's just uh, something for your group, just to remind you. I'd love you guys to pray um, for that. I'm going to end now, and we're going to hand over to Matt and George, who are going to lead us in um, our worship, and then we'll get the kids uh, back in. But I'm just going to sort of pray to bring um, that together. So you just want to bow your heads. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for the book of Ephesians. We thank you that the Apostle Paul who wrote it, um, Lord, inspired by your Holy Spirit, we thank you that it's in our Bible, Lord. We thank you for this time we spent going through it, Lord, and all we've learned, God. And as we kind of finish it now, so to speak, Lord, and we're moving on to something else, Lord, God, would you not let us forget its message, Lord, that the truth that we learn, God, would you put that in our hearts, uh, Lord Jesus? Would you teach us uh, what it means to be in a battle constantly, what it means to, to, to take on that armour, to remember your truth, your righteousness, to be ready to proclaim the gospel, to have faith, to, to know we're saved, to, to know your word, that we can speak it out boldly. Lord God, and I ask God, you make us a praying people. Lord God, that it's not just we pray when we meet together, but we pray on our own. We pray in our cars, we pray in our homes, we pray at our desks, we pray on the run. Uh, Lord, when we're moving from one place to the other, we pray in the solitude and we have those moments. We pray in crowds because we see the need. Uh, Lord Jesus, would you, God, would you come? Would you fill us with your spirit? Uh, Lord Jesus, would you, yeah, God, would you make us a praying church, Jesus? And God's people said, Amen. Fantastic. Thank you.